There is no growth in comfort and no comfort in growth. Business today typically values and promotes leaders for their subject expertise. Leaders who have command of the details and execute based on knowledge and experience are highly respected. However, to grow as a leader, you have to get out of your comfort zone. That means learning to lead without just being the expert. Learn to gain the trust and respect of a team that might know more than you do. Get comfortable with ambiguity and with not having all the information. Develop the skills and confidence to lead in a different way. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. I'm Wanda Wallace. Today we're going to talk about influence again. Now, in reality, getting people to do what you want them to do is a never-ending challenge. We've talked about this on past shows, and we will probably talk about it again on coming shows because it's a really complicated process. We've talked about a lot of techniques that will, in effect, allow you to or encouraging you to find ways of changing people's beliefs, changing their perspective, or changing their attitude. And those techniques are hugely important. Today, however, I want to talk about a different approach, a thing called behavioral design. You may have heard of nudges. That's what we're going to talk about. And it's one more tool for you to put in your toolkit or in thinking about how do you influence people to do what you want to do. So with me today as my guest is Siri Otilla, and Siri is an expert in translating academic research into practical interventions. She's currently a research scholar at the um, John F. Kennedy Harvard School of Government. When there, she is focused on promoting gender equality within organizations and advancing women in society. But more importantly, Siri frequently collaborates with and provides strategic advisory services to Fortune 500 companies, nonprofits, and local governments. And she is deeply steeped in this work called behavioral design. So we're going to talk about what that means, what that means in general for influencing. We're going to talk about what that means for gender. We're going to talk about what it means for an inclusive culture, broadly spoken. So Siri also has an MBA from Harvard, a master's in public policy from Harvard Kennedy School and a BA in chemistry and physics from Harvard. Siri, we have to wonder if we're ever going to get you out of Harvard here, but welcome to the show. <laughs> Thank you so much, Wanda, for having me. It's a real pleasure. It's, I'm joking about Harvard, but that's an impressive background as well. So, Thank um, you. Siri, at the very beginning, I use this phrase behavioral design as if we all know what that is, but what is it really and why does it matter so much? So in short, behavioral design is about creating environments that help us to better achieve our goals. A lot of research in fields like economics and social psychology tells us that people make lots of mistakes all the time in their decision-making, and often those mistakes occur in very predictable and unconscious ways. Behavioral design takes all of these insights about how our minds work, and it helps make... um, small tweaks into the environments where we live and work so that our inherently biased minds can get it right, can make better decisions. This matters because bias is built into our minds, of course, at the individual level. We are all biased in numerous ways, but it's also built into our systems and the practices and procedures that we follow. And it turns out that debiasing individual minds or changing hearts and minds, if you will, is incredibly difficult, perhaps impossible. We internalize these biases at a very early age. Um, Gender biases, for example, tend to be uh, kids are starting to pick them up as early as ages four, five, and six. But it turns out that debiasing the systems and the environments that we have created is not only possible, but in fact, often quite simple 
and quick and inexpensive. So it's a much better bang for our buck if we're trying to change people's behaviors and enable ourselves to make better decisions. Okay. All right. And I just want to say at the outset, the work that we're going to talk about has huge implications for gender and inclusivity and broad diversity of cultures in all of our organizations. But it also has incredible practice in just our day-to-day lives, the decisions that we make on a regular basis. Before we go too deeply down on the philosophy, though, can you give me a couple of examples of what behavioral design looks like and how it's worked? Absolutely. One of my favorite stories comes from orchestras, um, and as a matter of fact, my colleague, Iris Bonnet, who wrote an entire book about behavioral design called What Works? Gender Equality by Design, um, starts the book off with this story about how early in the 1970s, uh, the top five U.S. symphony orchestras were only 5% female. And over the course of barely four decades, the uh, share of women on these orchestras rose from 5% to just about 40 today. And that's really an astonishing transformation. And the way they accomplished this transformation was actually very simple in retrospect. These orchestras introduced a curtain into their audition process so that the evaluating musicians could still hear the music being played by the auditioning musicians, but they couldn't see those auditioning musicians. And just the addition of that curtain alone increased a female musician's chances of advancing to the next round in the audition process by 50%. And of course, if you had asked the evaluating musicians at the outset whether they were biased or whether they cared about what the musicians looked like, they would have said, of course not. I only care about hiring the very best musicians and hearing the very best quality music. And yet the story makes it clear that there was something else going on all along the way besides listening to the music. The identity and the demographic characteristics of the musicians were influencing how they were being evaluated. So that's just a very simple example of how behavioral design can help us create more equitable organizations and societies. Let me mention another one that's in a slightly Be- different vein. Hold on. And this is- before you go there, before you go there, Siri, yeah. I just had to make a comment about this one. I have heard um, a very well-known, world-famous orchestra conductor talk about the introduction of a curtain in the interview process for candidates to join his, in this case, orchestra. And he says, you know, he thought it was a foolish idea. He thought it wouldn't make any impact at all. He thought he was not biased in any way in his selection process and was stunned to see the results at the end of the day. So a 50% change in selection or advancement to the next level just by having that simple environmental change, if you will, so that I don't see the other individual. Exactly. I think it's astounding. Astounding. And, you know, I'm not surprised that he would say that he wasn't biased. That's a lot of how how many of us feel. It's also important to remember that the thing about bias that makes it tricky is that even once you know and acknowledge that you have it, it's really difficult to overcome its effects. So if we had simply told the evaluating musicians, please don't pay attention to how the um, auditioning musicians look, just focus on the quality of the music, that is incredibly hard to do. As I mentioned earlier, our minds often fail in very predictable and very consistent ways. So we really need those small tweaks into the environment, or in this case, the curtain, to help our biased minds get it right. Right. 
I, um, you know, I honestly believe, I know for this particular conductor, he would say his intention was to be fair and equitable. And I think that's true for a lot of us. We intend to make a decision based on a host of other factors. It isn't necessarily how we decide. I'm going to go back historically, um, Siri, to work. I know you know Amos and Tversky or Amos Tversky and Danny Kahneman in their original yes. work around decision biases. We're not talking about gender decisions. We're talking about do I make choice A or to make choice B, which one's going to give me the best outcome at the end of the day. And um, they were using a little bit of a statistical analysis. And so they went to statisticians, world-class statisticians, trained, deeply, you know, knowing the mathematics behind how do you make a choice between A and B and evaluate the possibilities. And even those people showed the same predictable bias as if our mind just works by trick, whether we intend it to or not, okay? All right, so the notion is to use the environment then to alter some of those biases. All right, you were about to give us a second example, and I interrupted you. So give us another example of how this um, behavioral design intervention works. So this is kind of a fun one, and this relates to honesty in expense reporting. So there have been a couple of large-scale field experiments that have demonstrated that having the signature on an expense reporting form, or even you can imagine a tax uh, form or an insurance claim form, having the signature at the beginning of the form versus at the end of the form actually makes a statistically significant difference in the amount of expenses or insurance or tax that people claim. And it turns Turns out, and you know, there's no reason a priori why we should um, have a gut instinct about which one of those yields better results. This is just one of those things that we have to study and test and, and see what works. And it turns out that having people sign the form uh, and commit to providing honest information at the beginning of the form uh, significantly increases honesty in expense reporting. And that's just a very simple tweak. You know, you have a form, and instead of having the signature at the end, you move it to the beginning, and you just see drastically better results. I can sort of logically maybe get my head around this one in that if I've committed to being honest in the beginning, I'm going to be careful about going all the way through. Whereas if I've done my expense report, I've kind of justified that this thing will be okay this time, then I'm committed to it, and I'm much more likely then to just sign and go forward with that. I guess that's how it works. Is that right? That's probably the mechanism. It's hard to know exactly what's going on inside people's brains as as these decision processes unfold, but that would seem quite reasonable. Okay. All right. Now, this is so much fun. Do you have a third example? I do. Well, why don't we go to one of uh, a very typical organizational process around performance evaluations. And a lot of companies that I work with um, have this practice of having employees conduct self-evaluations, which are then shared with their managers prior to the managers uh, making their own evaluations of, of those employees, whether this is once a year or twice a year, whatever the cycle is. And it turns out that our minds are not very adept at making independent judgments once we already have some information in front of us. So as soon as I, as a manager, receive my employees' self-evaluation, whatever scores they've given themselves become an anchor from which my mind adjusts up or down instead of making a genuinely independent assessment of that person from scratch. And you can imagine that this is problematic in in a number of ways, one of which is that we know that folks who are underrepresented in organizations tend to rate themselves overly conservatively. 
uh, for various reasons. And so you might have groups of people that are systematically giving themselves lower ratings than perhaps they should objectively be receiving, and then managers using those disproportionately low scores and using those as a starting point to adjust up or down, which in the long run leads to lower scores for those folks than they should be getting. So a very simple intervention to um, combat this issue is either to get rid of self-evaluations entirely or have the employees conduct their self-evaluations separately from the manager and then those two folks come together in a conversation where they share their own scores with the other person and debate them live instead of one person seeing the other person's scores in exam. Right. You know, this also works when you're doing brainstorming exercise. It's the exact same mechanism. Absolutely. The moment um, somebody in the room produces an idea, even if the brainstorming session is run phenomenally well and we don't get into the debate and all, we're just all creating ideas, the moment somebody puts an idea in the room, it limits the other alternatives that people will consider. Exactly. So the way to have a best brainstorming session is to have people write down their ideas before anybody says a word and then do the proper brainstorming exercise. Same idea. We get bias. We get an anchor, as you said before. That's right. Okay. I would fully endorse that approach. Okay. And it ha- you can begin to imagine that this has enormous implications for all sorts of places. So... Are there places where this behavioral design is particularly useful? Are there things we are to be particularly attuned to that this is the moment for behavioral design intervention? Yeah. This goes back to what you were saying earlier about there existing a gap between our intentions, our good intentions regarding what we want to do, um, and our actions, what we actually end up doing. You can think about eating healthy and going to the gym. Who doesn't know that that's the thing that you're supposed to do? And who doesn't want to eat better and exercise more? And yet, somehow we find it really, really hard to do. Same thing with things like organ donation. A lot of people, in theory, see the value in signing up to be an organ donor. And yet, in many countries, in many states, the rates of organ donation are shockingly low. So behavioral design works very well to close the gap between our good intentions and our actions. My field, as you mentioned, is gender and inclusion, and most of the people that I work with and most of the organizations that I work with will always say that they promote gender equality, they want to hire, promote, and retain the very, very best people and create an environment that is respectful and diverse and inclusive. And yet, when it comes time to do one of these things in a real-life situation, like hiring, for example, and you're looking at a slightly more qualified candidate or the one who shares your love of Pilates or baseball, let's say, uh, who you immediately connect with because they are on some level like you, we often tend to go with fit instead of ability. We often tend to go with the people that we're inherently comfortable with. So we need to help ourselves, but we also need to help our organizations to overcome this intention and action gap. And that's what behavioral design exists to help us do. So we have to know that there is a gap between the intention and the action, and then we can go looking for a behavioral design that will help fill that gap. Okay? Now, in my yeah. view, I don't know, it seems to me that every time I have to make a choice, a selection, I'm choosing A or B, I'm at risk for this bias creeping in so that my intent and my action doesn't match. Is that a reasonable assumption or a bad assumption? Well, I think it's a reasonable 
reasonable assumption, but bias can creep in certainly not only when we're comparing A and B against each other. It could also creep in if we're just evaluating A in a vacuum. Um, it could okay. also creep in if we have, you know, 10 choices instead of just two. Um, okay. There are some specific strategies that I know we'll get to of um, how you can decrease the amount of bias in your decision-making process. Okay. All right. So I know we're going to come to that one. Now, before we take a break, um, I use this phrase at the very beginning, be called a nudge. So what is a nudge, really, and how does that work? Yes. This term was launched by Cass Sunstein and Richard Thaler in their book, Nudge. Um, and Richard Taylor, I should mention, actually just won the Nobel Prize um, in Economics in 2017, so this work has um, gotten some very well-deserved credit recently. But they define nudge as an aspect of the environment or choice architecture, if you want to use the technical term, that alters people behavior in a predictable way without forbidding any options or we, without significantly changing people's economic incentives. So if you think of a simple example in a cafe or a cafeteria. You have to lay the food out in one way or another. There's no neutral design. You have to put the fruit somewhere. You have to put the dessert somewhere. And a nudge is a simple design of that cafeteria environment that helps promote healthy eating and points people in the direction of the fruit rather than dessert. Things like putting fruit at eye level or putting it at the checkout counter right before you cash out counts as a nudge. It's promoting the behavior that we think we want to see and we think that people want to do without restricting any of their choices. The dessert is still there. It might be 10 steps further away, but if someone's really motivated to get it, they can. Contrast that with a mandate like banning desserts in the entire cafeteria. Now you're actually restricting people's choices because they can no longer get to the dessert even if they want to. So that's really the design, uh, the difference between a nudge and a mandate. Okay, so it would be altering the layout in the cafeteria or offering the sequence in which a choice is made, for example, in order to change to get the intention and the action closer together versus taking choices away from people. That's exactly right. Okay. All right. Fabulous. All right, Siri, we're going to take a break then. With me today is Siri Otella. Siri is currently a research scholar in the Women in Public Policy Program at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. She is, as you can tell already, an expert in translating academic research into practical invention interventions, and she's worked with Fortune 500 companies, nonprofits, and local governments. Um, and her work, her research work, is focused on senior levels in the organization and helping create a more gender equality kind of program. When we come back, so we've been talking about this notion of behavioral design, tweaks in the environment, changes in the environment that are going to alter the choices that people make so that we close the gap between what are very good intentions and what are actions, even sometimes when we don't even realize that there's a gap in the way. And we talked about, for example, the curtain in interviews at an orchestra. So when we come back, I want to talk about how do you actually go about creating this more inclusive culture on your team. And rather than that be an elusive idea, we can talk about some very practical, tangible things you can do to create a stronger, inclusive culture, regardless whether that's a gender issue or just a mindset issue. We'll be right back. Be 
Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. How is your business running? It should be running smoothly with nary a hiccup, like a finely tuned machine. But if you're like most businesses, yours may be running nowhere close to that. Listen for Operationally Speaking with your host, Serju Samel. Our program will help you to run your entrepreneurial business easier, better, with less frustration. And by running it well, you're sure to be poised for faster growth. Tune in every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time and 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. With me today is Siri Otilla. Siri is an expert in translating academic research into practical interventions. She's currently a research scholar at the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard, does a lot of work with Fortune 500 companies, nonprofits, and local governments. And we have been talking about behavioral design. And behavioral design is the notion that you make small changes in the environment that alter the choices and actions people take. Sometimes when they are not even aware of what is actually influencing the choices they're making, this is another way of influencing people to do what you would like to see them do without trying to change their beliefs and perspectives and attitudes. In fact, some people, including um, several of Siri and her colleagues, would say that it may be impossible to actually change hearts and minds. We can have that debate, but I like this notion that there are more tangible things that I can do that are going to change the way people act. And an example that I particularly like from this last one is this notion that if I'm having you sign an expense report, having you sign at the top versus sign at the bottom of the form makes a difference in the level of honesty in a measurable, scientific, predictable way. I think it's fabulous. All right. So Siri, I want to shift from talking about what behavioral design is and some examples of it and talk about how do we begin to use techniques and strategies that create a more inclusive culture. And let me put in a context here too. You know, gender is a part of that, but so is getting somebody who has a different mindset, a different perspective on my team, feeling a part of, hearing, being heard and listened to. It's what's going to drive innovation in team performance at the end of the day. So what are the strategies that leaders can use that are going to really help create a more inclusive culture? Well, the nice thing about behavioral design is that it offers a lot of practical strategies that really count as low-hanging fruit. So let me give you an example around symbols and role models. 
We, of course, as individuals can act as role models by being visible in the work that we do and by giving people um, an example to look up to, to say, wow, I can see this person being successful, I can believe it, um, that I could be it too. But we also have a lot of symbols in our organizations um, in non-human forms. Think uh, the names of your conference rooms or the people whose faces are pictured on your recruitment brochures or who you choose to feature in your company's holiday video um, or even the folks whose work gets written up on the internal uh, website, the intranet, where you highlight cool, new, exciting projects. A lot of times, due to our unconscious biases, um, due to us being a rush, for example, we resort to using the most typical people and the most typical examples of success. Here at the Kennedy School, we had to come to terms with this um, firsthand about a decade ago when our professor, Jane Mansbridge, realized that we didn't have a single picture of a woman up on the walls of our school, even though the hallways and the classrooms are full of portraits. Exactly 100% of those portraits were of men. Of course, we hadn't done that intentionally. We have a student body that's roughly 50% female, but unconsciously, the message that we were communicating was that women are not leaders and that women's leadership is not worth celebrating um, and is not worth highlighting. So Professor Mansbridge um, took on this project of diversifying the pictures up on the walls and commissioning a bunch of new portraits, and I'm happy to report that the situation has since changed. But it sounds like such a small thing. Whose picture is up on the wall? Who are the conference rooms named after? But it really goes a long way in communicating the organization's values, and it goes a long way in making people feel like they belong in the environment, that their contributions are meaningful. Okay. All right. So symbols, things like who is featured and what? Who gets called out in a town hall meeting for something that they've done? Who's featured in various videos? Whose names are in the conference rooms? What photos are in the building? What photos on the brochure? What stories are told on the internet? Okay. Exactly. All right. Fair enough. Do you have other examples of ways in which we can use strategies to create a more inclusive culture? Another concept that I really want to share with the listeners is that of micro-sponsorship. This is kind of a new concept that's emerging in the literature, and micro-sponsorship is essentially small acts of support and help in the moment that you give your colleagues. You can think of it as advice and advocacy at the ground level without having to be part of a formal sponsorship or mentorship program. This is things like when someone gets interrupted in a meeting, you jump in and say, actually, I'd really like to hear James finish his point, please. Or if someone makes um, a sexist or racist or an offensive joke, actually calling them out on it and not just chuckling awkwardly and letting it go. Um, Or perhaps when someone makes a really great contribution uh, behind the scenes, a a more junior staffer, you take the moment to actually give them the credit that they deserve and call them out on it so that everyone else knows exactly who contributed that work. Those are examples of micro-sponsorship, and they really help to create an inclusive culture on two levels. First, when you're demonstrating that behavior as a leader, um, you're acting as a role model and encouraging others to do the same behavior. When other people see you giving credit to others and interrupting interrupters, they're more likely to do it themselves. But on a slightly deeper level, these acts of micro-sponsorship also help to shape the cultural expectations, the social norms, if you will, about what kind of behavior is tolerated and what kind of behavior is expected. And over time, that shift in norms will actually help to change other people's behavior as well. So any person who 
is interrupting others and gets called out on it in a meeting, you know, three times in a row, let's say, they're going to be less likely to, to interrupt people going forward. And that's how slowly over time you can start to change organizational culture. I um, remember interviewing a senior leader, I'll keep him anonymous at the moment, a large, well-known brand name, global enterprise, happened to be head of manufacturing. Um, And in his management team specifically, he made a point of making sure that the unusual voices didn't get silenced. And they get silenced in all sorts of unintentional ways, not... I don't think anybody intentionally saying you're an idiot and I don't ever want to hear from you again. It's just I have a point I want to make and I'm going to jump in to make it at the first possible chance I can do. And so some voices can get silenced. And he did exactly what you are describing in that he didn't make anybody feel embarrassed, you know, because it's not what their norms are for their culture. But when the other person finished the interruption, he would go back around and say, wait a minute, can we come back to the point that you that was being made? I want to hear more about it. And just draw the conversation back. And he said, you know, it didn't take more than three or four times before the message comes across that we can't do that to each other. Exactly. And a lot of these behaviors are, again, unconscious, but also incredibly subtle. I've sat in a lot of meetings where when people bring up ideas, other people enthusiastically comment on them and start building on them. And then when a particular person brings up their own idea, it's total silence. And the next person that speaks move on and talk, moves on and talks about something different. And again, that presents an opportunity for you as an individual to be a micro-sponsor in that moment and say, we've given a little bit of consideration to everybody else's idea. Why don't we give a little bit of consideration to this idea as well? It's really small actions in the moment that don't cost you anything, that don't take a lot of time, but really help people feel like they're heard. Okay. All right. Now, presumably, that means I have to start noticing that is part of the process, yes. Okay. All right. So I have symbols, the ways in which photos, features, names are used, and who that says is included and not included. And I have micro-sponsorship, partly as a role model, but partly also as helping shape some social norms of what we expect, how we treat each other. Are there other strategies? Well, the third one, and this is a big one, is just around increasing the diversity of people in your circle of consultation, in your circle of decision-making. Sometimes it's really hard to officially hire, uh, you know, dramatically diversify the people that work around you in an official capacity. Maybe your team is set and there's no open roles and you can't hire people. But that doesn't mean that you can't solicit more diverse viewpoints and perspectives for yourself, for your benefit in and around your work. So if you're looking to make a decision, instead of consulting all the typical suspects and the people that you always work with who are on your team, why not call up some folks who work in a different organization or maybe a different function in your organization or a way more junior person um, that's a high performer that might have a perspective to offer. If all the people who you're speaking are other women I would, uh, and you're a woman, I would highly encourage you to consult one or two men. It's always helps to bring more diverse perspectives into the deliberation process before decisions are made. My own rule of thumb for myself when I'm making important decisions is that I need to consult with at least two people who are meaningfully different from me. That could be in terms of their age, their race, their gender, what school they went to, where they're from, what type of industry they currently work in. There's an infinite 
number of dimensions of diversity. Um, but that's something that takes work and takes conscious effort for us to do because we naturally gravitate to the people who are most like us. Okay, so let me push back on this one. Uh, you know, clearly in our own head, we're back to intention, action, gap. We all know that if I get more information, I'm more informed and therefore make a better decision. Okay. We all know that having diverse perspective um, helps us see things that we would naturally see. We know that. But the truth is, I go to speak to somebody who is meaningfully different than me. It's going to, A, it takes time. B, there's a bit of suspicion on why I'm going to see them and what the, you know what this is about and what I'm really trying to do and what I try to do. And then three, it's just harder to communicate. So yeah, how do we overcome some of those natural barriers? I think, Wanda, you're hitting at something really important and fundamental, which is diversity is hard work. It doesn't come easily. There's this very well-publicized study that Anita Williams-Woolley from Carnegie Mellon and her collaborators conducted, which is the study that's most often referenced when we say that diverse teams perform better than collect, um, uh, homogenous teams, and indeed they do. But the flip side of that study that's left often talked about is the fact that folks on more diverse teams actually felt that they had performed worse before they, before they saw their results. And they also reported slightly less satisfaction with the process, precisely because diversity is hard work. It's meant to surface more questions and challenges and more divergent perspectives. And coming to a consensus when there's more diverse perspectives and people at the table absolutely does take a slightly longer time. But I strongly believe that it's worth it because it takes us from mediocre solutions and mediocre decisions to great um, solutions and decisions. I think it's also slightly a matter of recalibrating our expectations. The best solution is not often the easiest solution, and the best outcome um, is not always gotten to through the easiest process. Um, I think we have to recognize as individuals and as teams and organizations that if we want to be truly outstanding, it's going to take work at the level of the process. Right. Yeah, something we talk about and don't do nearly enough in organizational life. I think we tend to skip over the need to think about process. Um, You're citing of Anita Williams' study that diverse teams do perform, outperform homogenous teams that are all alike, but they don't necessarily feel as good about the performance and they're not as satisfied with the process. It's an important one. I always cite Robin Eli's and group uh, colleagues' study that diverse teams only outperform more homogenous teams if the diverse team members feel that they're in an environment, what she called a learning environment, or an environment where they feel their voice can be heard, meaning it's going to be a messy process, but it will be okay because we'll get to the solution at the end of the day. Absolutely. Okay. And so it speaks to the... Yeah. It really speaks to the interrelated nature of diversity and inclusion. You have to start by having a diverse set of people in the room, but if they don't feel psychologically safe in that environment to actually bring their diversity to bear and voice those divergent perspectives, we're not really going to see the benefit of that diversity. So diversity and inclusion very much go hand in hand. Well, actually, it can't worse because I often say if I'm trying to turn myself into something that I am not, a copy of the leader's style and approach, for example, then you not only get 
lose my diverse perspective, but you also get a bad imitation from a copy. So it's, exactly. it isn't going to go particularly well. Okay, so we've got three here. The symbols, so the names, the people, the faces, the portraits. We've got the micro-sponsorship, seeing small moments and, and stepping in to advocate for someone to make sure that we understand different points of view are respected and valued and given appropriate attention. And we also have increasing the range of people, the diversity of people that I consult with before a decision. Anything else we can do? There are so many things. Um, one that I would highlight is um, the importance of trying to reduce importance of trying to reduce hierarchy in order to encourage everyone to have a voice. One of the very common cognitive biases that most of us share is a tendency um, for groupthink, um, otherwise known as the bandwagon effect. We simply have a desire for harmony and conformity in a group. Um, none of us wants to be the contrarian who's holding up the process or uh, being viewed as a troublemaker. And for that reason, opinions often converge very early on in the decision-making process that leads to suboptimal results. Now, this can certainly happen in any type of group, even in a group where all people are peers, but groupthink very often happens in situations where there's power differentials or a hierarchy. And as a leader who's the most um, senior person in the room or on the team, there's a lot of things that you can do to reduce that perception of hierarchy and to encourage contributions from all the members of your team. A couple of simple strategies might include walking into the meeting room last and then sitting on the sidelines or on the side of the table instead of at the head of the table, making sure that as the conversation begins, you're the last person to speak. In fact, you might start going around the room and encouraging people to share their perspectives, starting with the youngest or the least senior person and then moving up to the most senior person. Um, Another strategy that I've seen deployed very effectively is rearranging the room. So instead of having people sit around a table, particularly if it's a rectangular table with the ends that tend to connote higher status, arranging chairs in a circle around the room so that there's no barriers between people and everyone can see each other and be on a genuinely level footing. Right. The um, I certainly know, I've talked to lots of CEOs who were of the management team and then they're announced as CEO. And one of the things that they talk about is how difficult the transition is from one moment in time, you were just one of the voices around the table to suddenly now your voice, whether you intended it or not, other people treat you with a deference because you now are the CEO, the final decision maker, if you will. And that, um, you know, at one point you could voice your opinion freely like everybody else. And now when you voice your opinion, everybody counts it as, oh, that's the answer. And they start coalescing around that view so that that's you right. get, you, you don't get the challenge that you used to get as a regular team member. Those CEOs always talk about the need to be very conscious about not articulating your view until you've gotten the discussion and the debate. And otherwise, you're going to silence that debate, which is an interesting exactly. one and a hard one to do. I think it's a very interesting one. You know, Siri, we're going to take a break here. But one of the things that it strikes me about this whole discussion you know, the notion of including different people, of having different perspective, um, of doing the micro-sponsorship uh, moments, of reducing the hierarchy. If we look at what's happening in some of the best thinking at the moment around building a collaborative culture, this is exactly the same stuff. Absolutely. 
We could take out the word inclusive and put collaborative in there, and I'm not sure it would be all that different. Because what you're trying to do is to break down barriers that force people to have conversations with each other that they don't that don't naturally happen so that they take joint ownership. And all of these things are what gets in the way of productive conversation. Exactly. Interesting. All right, with me today is Siri Otilla. Um, Siri is at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. She does a lot of work with Fortune 500 companies, as well as nonprofits and governments. Particularly, her work is around closing gender gaps. But as you've seen here, the kind of context of all of the work, from behavioral design to the inclusive culture, has a much broader impact than just on gender, though it clearly has an impact on gender. When we come back, I want to talk about how do you change the structures and processes in order to get people to take the actions that you want them to take. And we'll be right back. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. How is your work-life balance? In most businesses, no matter where you are positioned, there is always room for improvement. If you're an executive, learn insight about your business. Are you an employee? Learn how to better work with your team. Even if you're not in business, you can learn where your strengths and weaknesses can be played to their best potential. The Work-Life Balance with host Rick Morris can be heard live every Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. With me today is Siri Otilla. Siri is at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. She's a research scholar there. And as you can tell from the discussion, we've been talking about a lot of practical things that managers and leaders can do at all levels in the organization to increase the effectiveness of the decisions that we make. Now, the framework for all of this, just to remind everybody, is it's really around getting the best possible choices at the end of the day or influencing people to do what you want them to do. And the notion is that changing hearts and minds, changing perspectives takes too long and may not be possible anyway, that we're all biased in our decision making processes, not just in the gender way, but in hundreds of ways that are quite predictable and documentable. 
where we use shortcuts to make decisions. And the notion is, can we do changes in the environment and the behavioral design around us that are going to lead to better conclusions, better decisions? Now, part of the reason for caring about that is because we would like to create cultures that are more inclusive so that we have different voices sitting around the table. We create an environment where those different voices can collaborate effectively with each other. And in the result, in doing all of that, we're going to get better choices, better decisions at the end of the day. It may be a messier process. Um, it may be a less satisfying process, but it's a better outcome. And that one we can document um, all the way through. Now, I do want to highlight, it's not just about collaborating with people who are like you. It's about making sure that you have different perspectives because that's the only thing that's going to open new possibilities. So for this last segment, I want to shift and talk about processes. Another element of the behavioral design of ways in which you can change the process or the structure in the part of the world that you control in order to get better decisions, have greater influence, get the kind of outcomes you're looking for. So, Siri, what do you mean by changing structures and processes? And give us an example. How does this work? This can be very, very simple uh, and low-cost, easy to implement tweaks into what you're already doing. Let me give you an example from meetings. Many organizations these days conduct meetings where some of the participants are physically in a room and the rest of the participants are virtually on the phone. And I've sat in a number of those meetings, and it tends to be really difficult to get equal engagement and contributions from the folks on the phone than from the folks in the room who get energy from each other and are looking at each other and can see each other's body language. So one of the organizations that I've had the pleasure of collaborating with came up with a really cool intervention to test. And the intervention was that they instituted a rule where in all of these mixed meetings, the virtual people would always go first. So whenever they opened uh, things up for conversation or for voting or for decision-making or deliberations, they would go through all the people who were on the phone first. They would get to say everything that they wanted to say before the folks in the room could take over. And that significantly uh, increased everyone's feeling of being engaged and being part of the decision-making process. And again, it's just a very, very simple change to how you run your meetings. What a clever idea, because I hear this problem all the time, usually from people who are on the phone saying, how do I how, how do I get my voice heard? Because if everybody in the room has spoken, there's not a lot left to say, usually, other than, okay, and I'm often quite bored by the conversation at that point at any rate, so I don't want to be one more voice um, slowing people down. So have okay. the people who are not in the room go first. And I yep. can see then how people in the room then can pick up on, you know, like what this person said there or that person knew. It's, um, it feels much more interactive. Wow. Do you have any other meeting tips that are going to be fabulous? Another tip for meetings probably, um, again, is to make sure that you're including diverse perspectives around the table. Um, one way in which an, another organization that I worked with did this um, was they instituted a new uh, set of social norms for their meetings um, in order to help uh, encourage diverse contributions uh, from participants. What they did is they agreed on a common set of five to ten simple rules for how they wanted meetings to be run. This included things like everyone needs to come on time, nobody's checking their phones, and there are no interruptions. And then they ordered a set of red flags, physical red flags, that they put up in all the meeting rooms and in people's offices. And whenever anyone acted not in accordance with those commonly agreed rules or norms, 
um, other folks were empowered to quickly raise the red flag to simply indicate that a transgression had occurred. The meeting didn't stop. The conversation wasn't derailed. But everyone just became a lot more aware of the fact that a norm had just been broken. And you could think that this was a fairly radical in, uh, intervention. It sounds pretty drastic, but actually it turned out to be phenomenally successful. And it really brought people together and made everyone feel like they were in the same boat because, let's be honest, most of us at one point or another um, have done something that broke some kind of social norm, arrived to a meeting a couple minutes late, for example. And so the flags were a great way to indicate um, breaking of norms without criminalizing those transgressions. So, and I love the fact that you don't have any discussion about it. There's no debate, there's no agreement, there's no disagreement, there's no justification, there's no well but this time, it's just, okay, noted. Exactly. And I think, you know, people probably followed up sort of one-on-one after the meeting um, to say, wait, you raised a flag on me, what did I do? But I think most of the time they realized what they had done. They do. And sometimes you may still choose to violate those social norms. It's just now needs to be more conscious rather than accidental, I think, is part of the intent here. Okay, let's move away from meetings and into things like promotion processes, something we all struggle with getting right Um, Most senior managers I know spend an inordinate amount of time trying to get this right. Any advice on how to change the structure and processes there? Yes. This is some really um, innovative and great work that was done by my colleague Iris Spinett um, at Harvard Kennedy School, along with Max Bazerman and others. And this is about how diversity emerges in our decision-making. It turns out that when we make multiple decisions simultaneously in a bundle, more diversity emerges than when we're making individual decisions separately over time. And this applies to promotions in a large way. So a lot of companies, of course, have standardized promotion time cycles, um, you know, maybe once or twice a year. But particularly smaller companies, or particularly at senior levels, we tend to promote people just when they come up or hire people when they come up. Maybe one person in January, maybe one person in March, maybe another one in May. What can easily happen is that as we're indiv- uh, evaluating those people individually without comparing them against a peer set of other people who are going up for a promotion, we actually end up comparing themselves to the prototype, to the person who is most prominent in the organ, to the type of person who's most prominent in the organization, or to the type of person who's been that uh, successful in that role in the past. And those people are often not the most diverse um, candidates or diverse folks when we're trying to increase diversity in our organizations. So the better approach is to try to bundle these decisions and promote folks, let's say, once or twice a year, and then compare those promoted uh, promotion candidates against each other. And that helps to take away some of the bias inherent in these decisions. Okay. You certainly see this, um, you know, not with the intention around diversity, but let's just take a sile. I'll see a senior leader had one not too long ago. Senior leader who's a very driven, um, go get a make it happen type leader style. Okay. It's one we see, I see a lot of them, but that's one style, and in many ways a quite effective style. In this case, his preference is to promote people who are like him. Mm-hmm. And can't imagine seeing that somebody who doesn't have that same kind of drive, hunger would be the word that he would use, might be effective in the role because they don't look to him like they're ambitious, to pick a word. Exactly. And so even in his organization would select 
deselect um, various men who might be brilliant at the job, but they don't look a lot like him. So your notion then is when I'm making a lot of decisions, we're going to be less likely to compare it against a prototype or against myself, for example. Exactly. So and I'm the other benefit of the other benefit of bundled decisions is that it makes it immediately obvious whether there is any diversity in the resulting decision making. So if you're promoting one person at a time, you know, every two months, well, you're really thinking about that one promotion at hand and you kind of forget who the last six people were that you promoted over the last six months. But when you're promoting seven people at a time, if they all look exactly the same or come from exactly the same school, for example, it becomes painfully obvious because their names are listed right next to each other. Okay. All right. And presumably this whole notion about bundled decisions would apply to all sorts of other decisions, not just around promotion time. Definitely. Think hiring. Think making decisions about people's um, salary raises or bonuses. Um, Think decisions about allocating projects um, and placing people onto teams. The same principles apply in all of these cases. Okay, so the more bundled I can make the decisions, the more the more effective the decisions are going to be from getting a broad perspective, broad point of view captured. That's right. And hopefully a better one. All right, so you mentioned hiring. We've got just a couple of minutes before we're out of time. Give me, um, you know, some tactics for how do we make sure we're making better hiring decisions. One key thing to do is decide on your criteria in advance. Decide on what exactly it is that you're looking for in your candidates. Agree um, on those evaluation criteria among everyone involved in the hiring process and then stick to them. There was a fascinating study that came out of Yale from Jeffrey Cohen and Eric Ullman a couple of years ago where they had participants hiring for the fictional role of a police chief, which, of course, is stereotypically a male job. And the participants evaluated male and a female candidate, always one of whom had more experience or education. And when the participants were allowed to select whichever candidate they wanted, they ended up going with the man every time, regardless of whether he had more experience or education. And when asked to justify their decision, they shifted their criteria to be able to justify whichever decision they had made. But this bias in favor of the man, this gap in um, hiring, hypothetical hiring, disappeared when the participants were asked to select the criteria in advance. So if they had decided that street smarts and and actual on-the-job experience was more important than education, then they picked whichever candidate had more experience, whether it was the woman or the man. And it's a really stark illustration of the importance of setting those criteria in place in advance so that it's less likely for you to be able to justify favoring someone who stereotypically fits the role. Right. And presumably that also allows you to challenge each other to say, well, wait, you think this person has more street smarts, but, you know, where's your evidence? Or I got a different impression. So we can have a little bit more constructive debate because we know what we're talking about. We're not using loose language like they just have more gravitas to pick one of my exactly. favorite ones lately. Okay. Exactly. Very, very interesting. Um, And presumably one of the things you said earlier would also make a difference in hiring here, and that is that we don't talk about our evaluation until we've all interviewed the candidate. Yes. 
Yes. Okay. And I would go even further to suggest that we should use as much as possible the same questions asked in the same order of all candidates so that we can genuinely compare the candidates against each other. This right. goes back to the concept of bundled decision-making. If all right. the candidates were asked totally different questions, it's really hard to compare them against each other. But if we can actually look across and say, well, who answered this particular question the best, then that comparative um, evaluation becomes much more meaningful. Okay, I love this. All right, Siri, fortunately or unfortunately, we're out of time. It's been fabulous. Thank you very much for being a guest on the show. Thank you, Wanda. It's been so fun. All right, so for those who want to remind again, Siri Otella. Siri is currently a research scholar at the John F. Kennedy School of Government at Harvard. Obviously, she does lots of work with Fortune 500 companies and other nonprofits. I think, Siri, the thing that really, really strikes me out of all of this one are the simple things that we can do in day-to-day actions all of us can do that are going to create better outcomes. And I'm just going to point to two very simple things. The notion that I put a signature at the top of the form, uh, reporting my expenses versus at the bottom of the form. And the notion that I start a conference call by having people who are virtual speak first. Those simple little things would make such a difference. Siri, again, thanks for being with us and join us next week for another episode. Thank you for joining us for Out of the Comfort Zone. Tune in again for another edition with Dr. Wanda Wallace next Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.